0: Morning, Calvary. And thank you, John, for uh, praying for us and for that Bible reading. Uh, And I want to say thank you to everyone, especially those of you who are listening here in St. John's, Newfoundland, because it's really nice out there. Uh, And it must be great that you have decided to spend some time this morning praising Jesus and listening to God's word. And, you know, I have to admit... I think I'm a pretty good guy. I, I, I know that you guys probably agree with me because you're deciding to spend time watching me preach from the word of God. You've chosen to watch a fairly conservative Christian uh, church service. You know that we're going to preach from the Bible and you know that we have a strong view of what the Bible says. And so I guess that when I preach from the Bible, you're going to think it's a pretty good thing. So I must be a pretty good guy. I feel I'm a pretty good guy. And you guys seem to be reaffirming my feeling. And I say pretty good guy because I don't want to sound arrogant. Now, I actually believe that, you know, I'm probably even better than, you know, I'm letting on here because, you know, my feelings are I'm pretty good. And I wouldn't want to seem arrogant because, you know, arrogance is a bad thing. And I feel arrogance would be seen as bad. So I don't want to be seen as arrogant. So I just say I'm pretty good, not, you know, just good. I think some of you right now are beginning to understand that there's a problem here. There's something wrong with what I'm saying. Sure, uh, again, a lot of you probably do think that I'm a pretty good guy, that I'm a nice guy. But there is something wrong with that, because I have to admit, in the darkness of my own heart and in the things that I often do, I'm actually not that good a person. But most of the time, I find myself living in a world where I imagine that I am the definition of goodness. Goodness that goodness is something that I feel and that's reaffirmed by those around me, and that because we're all uh, saying that we're good, then we must be. And yet, the Bible is pretty clear that goodness is not something that we decide on. It's something that God is. And we are if we're like that. So, my arrogance in believing that I'm a good person, that I'm in the, de- <laughs> and sometimes the definition of goodness is a very bad thing. It's, it is arrogant, regardless of whether I say I'm just pretty good or good. And I remember a pastor many, many years ago telling me that if you're an arrogant man and you find yourself as a single arrogant dude, there's only one way to save you. You need to get married now since he was a married pastor at that point and had been for 20 years, I'm going to submit that he probably didn't quite understand the intricacies of being single very much. He didn't remember it very well. Allow me to submit a different idea of what could be an example of something that might bring humility to you. Online dating. Now, I've tried online dating myself a couple of times. Uh, it's, It's an interesting field because for the first little while, you actually make a profile of yourself. You tell other people the kind of person you actually see yourself to be. Because you're doing it yourself on a computer, you usually tell them what you feel about yourself. And sometimes, unfortunately, you might be wrong about yourself. Give you a quick example. Almost everybody on online dating sites seems to like hiking. Now I I have to admit the right now I am a little bit less deluded. I've, I've had problem. I've had things tell me why I'm deluded in this. I actually don't like hiking very much unless it's a story about hiking that I can read in a novel while I'm sitting in my library with a coffee and jazz music playing in the background. I'm not really a hiking dude, but I can remember when I first went on online dating, I would, I I saw everybody saying that they liked hiking and I said, yeah, I kind of like hiking. I hiked once, back in 2012. I remember it feeling good when I stopped. Yeah, I like hiking. And that continued until I had one date with a very godly woman who actually did like hiking. The results, I'll spare you the details, was very good for my humility, but not very good for a second date. You see, the reason is fairly simple. Facts don't care about your feelings as conservative commentator Ben Shapiro puts on his Twitter feed. Reality eventually will question our delusions. The impressions we have will face reality. And so we have to deal with that. And so delusions are A bad thing. They need to be faced. They'll either be faced by someone who loves us and cares for us, as within marriage, hopefully, or, well, they'll be faced by the reality we have to live in in the real world, sometimes to our own detriment. And this isn't just limited to dating or to marriage or to my belief that I'm a good person. It's true about everything. It's true about my, especially my morality, my own view of my own righteousness. We're in Hosea chapter 12, but the message of Hosea 12 that I'm going to be explaining to you is pretty nicely encapsulated in Jeremiah 17. In Jeremiah 17, 9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The point is that we are deluded oftentimes. We often believe that things are, well, that we are better than we are. But it doesn't just leave it as, at this, that, you know, we are lost in our own delusions. The reply given in the very next verse, Jeremiah 17:10, is, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. You see, facts don't care about our hearts or our feelings. But the truth, God, most certainly does. So when you look at Hosea chapter 12, I think there are four points that I want to bring out here to explain what I mean. Those four points are as follows God is not deceived. Two, God's people sometimes are. Three, God's people cannot avoid God's justice. But point four, God can, sometimes does, save them. So God is not deceived. God's people sometimes are. God's people can't avoid God's justice. And God can save. First of all, look at verses 1 to 3. It says this, Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. So Ephraim is doing bad stuff. They're multiplying falsehood and violence. Keep violence in your head for a moment. And when they say they make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt, it means that they're having dealings with these nations that are actually opposed to God. They're being uh, betrayers of God's good, good graces. And then, so that's Ephraim. Then it talks about Judah, the Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to all his deeds. Now, indictment is a big word. It means to think poorly of, though to uh, show as wrong. When in the U.S. there was an indictment handed down on uh, the president, it, it meant that the, in, the president was seen as a bad person. He had still had to be investigated, but there is a problem with the way that he was acting. There is an indictment against Judah. And God, the Lord, will punish Jacob according to his ways. Now, that's kind of a strange thing to see here. There's a small ambiguity being played on throughout Jer- uh, Hosea chapter 12, and you'll, you'll see this a couple of times. Jacob actually has two names biblically. You can see the story in Genesis 25 to 32. Judah, or sorry, Jacob has two names, the first name being Jacob, the second name being Israel. So we're dealing with three names of three people historically in Genesis, but by the time of Hosea that represent three groups of nations. Ephraim is Jacob's grandson or Israel's grandson. Judah is Israel's son, both of them now tribes of Israel. And Jacob is referring to the whole tribe of Israel, the entire nation. In verse 3, it talks about this a little bit more. Uh, In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. Uh, That's a play on Actually, what did happen, if you go back into Genesis 25, you can see the example of this where Jacob was grabbing onto literally his brother's heel as he came out of the womb. But there's a double entendre here because sometimes the word is also used to mean violence. So, and I think that the writer of Hosea, Hosea, actually intended both. He wants you to think not just of uh, the physical act that, Judah, that uh, Jacob did but also of the violence that Israel was doing. And and violence that parallels rather nicely to the violence of Ephraim in the first verse. What God is saying through Hosea is that the people of Israel, Ephraim, Judah, and Israel proper, have all wandered astray from God. They're violent, they're rebellious, they're indicted, They've done poor things and God is not deceived. He sees it all perfectly. There is no sense in which he doesn't see what's happening. It goes even further in verse seven of uh, Hosea 12. It says, a merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. And it says, Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. The parallel here is pretty clear. You can see that Ephraim has done horrible things. They've decided to do horrible things to the people around them, to their own people sometimes. And in the midst of that, they've convinced themselves that they're righteous. And God is still not fooled. Now, there are very few people who will actually say, I love to oppress. I mean, I'm sure there's some crazy people who do Fifty Shades of Grey stuff who say that, but nobody generally twists their mustache in in the mirror and says, I'm going to do evil today. In this case, we're talking about a people who because of what they actually did love, whether that's power or greed, or safety, or any other number of things have actually moved oppression to the top of the list of things they'll do. Because oppression gets them the things they want. And because it gets them the things they want, they love it. You see, God is not deceived, but God's people often are. God's people often move into deception. And the really sad part, in the midst of the deception, we can often believe that we are more righteous than we are. Actually, I'll go so far as to say we almost always do. It's strange. Ephraim actually says, because I'm rich, I've found wealth for myself. No one can find problems with me. He actually, they're actually using their wealth to justify their ungodliness. In all my labors, they say, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. Even though God says directly, I find in you iniquity and sin. I find not just the acts of oppression. You have a desire to oppress. And at that very moment, Ephraim is acting against God. At the very moment, they're using as examples of their righteousness, they are unrighteous. At the very moment, they are believing that they are doing the good and godly thing. They are doing the evil thing. It's a good thing we're talking about somebody other than us, isn't it? that we're not Ephraim and yet I'm pretty sure that we're we're not much better. I mean, it might be different. I don't know, I can't point to anybody and say, you know, you are a horrible, evil person. But how often are we like this? Do we do things that are wrong and use them ironically as ways to imagine that we're right? Their entire theology is built about the godliness of being rich. Um, Actually, I think uh, American Gospel is on Netflix right now. You might want to look at it. It talks about how sometimes Christians can imagine that we're righteous people because we happen to be wealthy. And yet at those very moments, we use our wealth to oppress others. That's not the only way we do it. Their entire church is built around the idea that, we, that they've got a very light set of rules. And this set of rules, as long as you follow these set of rules, you are a righteous person. And at that very moment, they oppress people who happen to have bigger struggles with those particular sins, but may not have struggles with other sins that the, these people are guilty of, but not part of the set. So those guys out there are unrighteous, and we're righteous. We do that a lot because we like to believe that we're good. When it gets right down to it, we like to imagine that goodness lives in us. And at the very moments that we're saying that, we often use our ungodliness to defend ourselves, to defend ourselves against those little doubts in the night that may come to us, that maybe we're not as good as we think we are. We say, we at Ephraim, "Ah, ah, but I am rich, I have found wealth for myself, and all by labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin." And the worst part about it is, they're deluded. They honestly believe that they're righteous. They honestly believe that at this very moment, when they are doing oppressive things to those around them, that they are being righteous. I hate to admit it, that's something I'm often guilty of. I mean, I'm a pastor. I do a lot of things that people would think of as good things. And sometimes it's very tempting of me to imagine, like uh, a specific Pharisee in one of Jesus' stories, thank you, God, that you've made me like this, that I don't do this, and I don't do this, and I don't do this. Not like this, those horrible people outside. <laughs> and yet, in that very moment... I am unwilling to tell that other person about Jesus, about the salvation I know in Jesus Christ. Because it's so much better to feel better than him. Sometimes the delusion is mine. And the biggest problem with a delusion, the biggest danger of a delusion, is that it keeps you from seeing the truth. It keeps you from actually moving in a way that could fix things. You see, while we are deluded, we can't save ourselves. The Bible uses uh, it clearly with the image of death. We are dead in our trespasses and sins without the work of God. We don't turn away from our sin because in the end we don't want to. We imagine that our sin is what gives us value the very things that are terrible and evil oppositions to God, we use as ways to validate ourselves. And in that case, we don't turn away from our sin. We, and the problem that we face, as I said, the truth cares about you. He cares about what you believe. He cares about what you do. The truth isn't changed by your feelings. But the truth does care about your feelings. God reports from, through Hosea to the people of Israel, I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. Now, notice it doesn't say, I will, I will suggest you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. I will give you a great idea about dwelling in tents. No, he says, I will make you dwell in tents, as in the days of the appointed feast. God is saying that he will bring his people to repentance. Not that he can bring them to repentance, but that he will. But he will also give recompense for evil deeds. Look at verse 14. Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will replace him, repay him for his disgraceful deeds. Whether or not we believe we're good is irrelevant. The question is whether or not we are good, whether or not we are following God. We can feel that we follow God all the live long day, if we don't actually follow God, the only thing that we are is deluded. And God is not impressed by delusions. We can imagine all day that our righteousness is going to bring God to like us more. Unless we're actually being righteous, it doesn't help but point 4 and i hate to be uh, have harped on all that stuff here because the main part point of hosea 12 is actually in point 4 god can and will save his people just follow through here first of all verses 8 9 to 13 This parallel between Jacob and the people of Israel continues, and he's going to play the person of Jacob to the nation of Israel over and over again. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. Now that means that he'll bring recompense. He will actually bring the truth to bear on his people, Israel. But he'll do it in a way that brings them back to himself. He continues, I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. If there is inequity in Gilead, surely they will come to nothing. In Galgal, they sacrifice bulls. Their altars are like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Those things are going to fall away. And then he uses the example of Jacob, of Israel. And he says that his salvation is coming. Verse 12, Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. So Israel was put in a place of degradation for a while for the sake of a greater goal, for the sake of a greater spouse. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet, he was guarded. What does the parallel here mean? It's stated clearly in verses five and six. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. And don't read this just as some kind of isolated command. This is a promise of God that you can return to him. By the help of your God, you can return. That's what he's saying to Jacob and Israel. That's what he's saying to Ephraim and Judah. Repentance is available. Uh, My arms are open. I'm ready to welcome you. And he will move heaven and earth to bring that to pass. If it means that he will, he has to throw down our grand delusions of self-righteousness, he will. Because he loves you. He is not willing to let you perish in the imaginations of your own hearts, Israel, he says. He is ready to bring you back. And by his power, by his might, by his love, by his grace, and by his mercy, he will reconcile. Just return. So, there is kind of a problem then here for us. My name's not Jacob. Even if it was, I don't think I'd be the Jacob that he's referring to here. I'm not part of the nation of Judah, and I'm not part of Ephraim. I'm a Christian living in the early 21st century in St. John's, Newfoundland, Canada. How is this good news for me? Glad you asked. You see, the good news is that God does not change and so he has not changed. Hebrews 13:8 says it well, referring to the revelation of God in Jesus Christ in a very similar way to Hosea and Hosea 12. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The God who called for repentance of the people of Israel and moved heaven and earth to make it possible makes it possible for us Now, and this is the application again in four points. These are things that we need to know. God is not deceived. Praise God, he is not deceived. There is a real truth. There is real goodness. There is real justice. And it will win. Because God is not deceived. Jesus, when he was talking to people who were similarly deceived about their own self-righteousness, said in Luke 16, verse 15, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Sometimes that's true, but the truth will be vindicated regardless of what communities we put around ourselves, regardless of what feelings we try to tell ourselves make us righteous, God's righteousness will win through. And he is not deceived. And yes, we are often deluded. <laughs> Honestly, we're, we get worse at this every year. I mean... <laughs> I actually have had classes at the university where somebody told me that ethics were basically whatever any local community believes. I I said that earlier just before the service to to our bassist and he says, so Hitler was okay? And if that was true, yeah, because his community was okay with it. That's a delusion. What is right is always right. What is wrong is always wrong. Our oppression of others is always wrong. Whether we convince ourselves that it's love or not. Our desire to be vindicated before our friends and neighbors instead of vindicated in the truth is wrong. Whether we convince ourselves of the, of the difference or not. And I worry about that one a great deal because I, I, I like people to like me. I, I oftentimes will make that more important than actually living in the truth. And that's wrong. I'll even sometimes convince myself that it's loving or just. I'll say, I don't need to say that to that person. It wouldn't be loving. Except what I'm trying to do, avoid is not really their damage. I'm trying to avoid them disliking me. And sometimes, honestly, speaking the truth is going to be disliked. But we need to be the kinds of people who love truth more than we love our delusions. Because we, those delusions do move us astray from God. My brother, Matt, is going to be preaching on this later, but I just wanted to mention it in passing. James chapter 1, verses 14 to 18, gives us an example of the situation that we're in. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And James says to his hearers, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. He says that because we're likely to be deceived. Sin deceives us. It makes us believe things that are not true for the sake of our self-confidence, our our self-righteousness. But do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Friends, we can be so easily deluded that righteousness is something that we create instead of recognizing that righteousness is something God imputes to us through Jesus Christ. He is our righteousness. But so often, because we're deluded, because we seek after evil and wrong things because we're deluded we cannot save ourselves from the wrath of god ironically we just don't we really don't want to we'll convince ourselves of all sorts of interesting things to try and avoid the fact that god is real and that he has desires for our lives we'll imagine that god doesn't have wrath that god is okay with our evil We'll convince ourselves that God doesn't really care about this one minor thing that we're validating when he is holy above all else. We ignore places like Romans 1, 18, where it says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, not just outside, but also in their own hearts. Ungodliness and unrighteousness have no future. The delusion will meet the reality of God. As it says in John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him if in our delusion we say that we don't don't need to follow Jesus, we don't need to seek after him, we don't need to trust in him, the wrath of God remains on us because God is righteous and he will bring his righteousness to pass. But praise God because that's not the end of the story. You see, even as Hosea gave foresights of this through the people of Israel and, the, and, and Ephraim and Judah, that God would move heaven and earth to save his people, God did more than that to save you and me. where He once moved nations, God in his infinite majesty did not count that something to be grasped but made himself man god in the person of jesus christ lived a sinless life and accepted the punishment we richly deserved so that the wrath of god went on him and the acceptance of god comes upon us as timothy as timothy 1 timothy 1:15 says the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that christ jesus came into the world to save sinners deluded sinners too of whom i am the foremost You see, facts don't care about your feelings, but the truth, the way the truth and the life does. He desires that your hearts would turn to him. And he has made a way for us to be saved. And he's moved heaven and earth to do it. (laughs) Even in the midst of our delusions... (laughs) the lord god is ready to accept us even now friends do you face problems in your do you face delusion in your life do you think that you're a righteous person independent of christ well look at the righteousness of christ and see if you still believe that do you right now feel the weight oh no the the delusions that I've had, the beliefs I've had that I am accepted by God because of my righteousness, that's falling apart right now. Praise God. You're a sinner. And Jesus saves sinners. Jesus cares about you. Jesus made a way for you to be saved. Don't wait. You don't need to be in a room with a pastor like me to be able to come to Jesus Christ. He's closer than the air you breathe. He's closer than that mask you're probably wearing to keep other people from getting COVID-19. Lord God, the Lord God has prepared a way of salvation for you and you can turn to him. So in the words of Hosea, chapter 12, verse 6, so, you, by the help of your God, a help he's already provided, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. Let's pray. Lord God, you are good and you are holy. You don't leave us in our delusions of grandeur, in our sinfulness, or in our our self-righteousness. Lord God, we are saved because you have saved us, not because we've saved ourselves. You've moved heaven and earth to save us, and Lord, now as we turn to you, we pray that we would trust you above all else, that we would not rest on the laurels of our own righteousness, but we would trust in you, that we would hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for you, our God. This we pray in Jesus Christ's name.